and John chapter 12. And uh, I want to invite uh, Joshua Easley back up. Um, Josh did our, our dramatic uh, reading uh, l- last week. I just want to remind you, jo- Josh is a missionary. He works in a number of different countries, among which is the Philippines. And uh, he is a master storyteller. And as you know, our world is increasingly not literate. It's more oral. Um, I was kind of blown away by the fact that uh, somebody told me that um, illiteracy is rising around the world, not getting less. And a lot of people are using stories as a way of not only teaching, but as a way of, of helping people understand and be equipped uh, to live. And so um, Josh is, gonna, is going to take us through the scripture we're going to study today. John chapter 11, 46 through 12, 11. All right. Now last time, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and he'd said, untie him and let him go. And many had believed in Jesus because they saw what happened. But others went to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done. And so when they heard this, the religious leaders and the Pharisees gathered the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. We know that this man does great miraculous signs. If we let this continue soon, everyone will believe in him. And then the Roman army will come in, and they will destroy our temple and our nation. Then Caiaphas, leader of the the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know that it's better for one man to die for the people than for the entire nation to be destroyed. Now, he didn't say this on his own. But being high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the nation. Not just for one nation, but also to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered throughout the world. And so the Pharisees made a plan to put Jesus to death. And so Jesus stopped his public ministry and left Jerusalem. He went to the other side of the Jordan to a village of Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. Now Passover was coming soon. And... Many people were coming to Jerusalem early so they could get the purification ceremonies done before Passover started. Now, they kept looking for Jesus, and they didn't see him. So some said, what do you think? He's not going to show up, is he? Now, six days before Passover, Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Lazarus, the one he raised from the dead. And now a dinner was prepared in his honor, and... Mary prepared the food, and Lazarus was one of the people sitting at the table. Then Mary got up and brought a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. And then she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. The room was filled with the fragrance. But Judas, the one who would later betray Jesus, said, that was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And because he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has done this in preparation for my burial. You will not always have me, but you will always have the poor among you. Now, 
Many people heard Jesus had come to Bethany, and so they flocked to go see him. They also went to see Lazarus, the one he raised from the dead. And so the Pharisees also made plans to kill Lazarus. For it was because of him that many people deserted them and followed Jesus. Amen. Thank you. We're going to look at the subject of choosing to love or hate Jesus this morning. Over the years, uh, many people have confessed to me that at times they have had a love-hate relationship with somebody that they were in a friendship or a close family relationship with. It might be a love-hate relationship with a brother or a sister. It could be a love-hate relationship with a business partner or a spouse. I've heard this so often over the years that I've come to realize it's not uncommon for somebody to say, Ugh, I have a love-hate relationship with, fill in the blank, this person. Imagine, for instance, that a young couple uh, is in love and they're going to get married. They're so excited about their upcoming life together. They're dreaming about the future. They're dreaming about what's going to happen in the years to come. Simultaneously, they are building expectations about themselves, about the relationship, about the other person. They're dreaming about future events. They're letting this other person into the private spaces of their life. Their plans are built on trust. And then, as almost always happens in relationships, a crisis comes, a conflict comes, and the partner begins to let you down. It could be that you discover there's a hidden habit that this person has, or a way of dealing with anger that is immensely disappointing, or some secret that gets revealed, something like that. And then all of a sudden, it throws your feelings about the relationship into, into chaos. You still love the person, but what they did is something that you don't like. What they did makes you feel angst and frustration and disappointment. And you say thing, things like this, I love you, but I hate this trait. I love you, but I hate what you just did. I love you, but I hate how this, this just made me feel. Many people have, have confessed this kind of thing to me. At times, I feel like I have a love-hate relationship with this, with this other person. Now, here's the deal. You can also feel this way toward God. Uh, here's how it goes. You come to Christ, you grow in Christ, you sense the love of the Father, you sense the fullness of the Spirit. As you grow in Christ, you have expectations about the future. You have hopes for how God is going to work in your life. And then a really hard trial comes. A really tough affliction comes. And now you're left with these conflicting feelings. Like you say, God, I love you, but I hate what just happened. God, I love you, I follow you, but I can't stand this new circumstance that's come into my life. Why did you allow it to happen? Did, did, I, did I do something wrong? Is the fault in you? And so you're left with these conflicting feelings about God. You see the 
book of Job, you'll read the book of Job and you see Job wrestling with these sorts of feelings. Job's wife certainly wrestled with these feelings because at one point she says, Job, honey, just curse God and die. And it's this this love-hate relationship that we have with people that can sometimes get transferred to a love-hate relationship with God. God, I love you, but I hate what just happened. I'm kind of mad at you for allowing it to happen. How could you have allowed this to take place? Now, the account that we're going to look at this morning very specifically addresses a love-hate relationship with God. And we see that in the way John tells these stories. He's going to tell us three stories. And he uses a hate, a, um, a love-hate-love structure. As actually, I'm wrong about that. I messed it up. It's actually a hate-love-hate structure. Here's the way it looks. There's initial hatred among the leaders in 1145 to 57. A lot of hatred there. Then we see the love of Mary in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and that love is an astonishing love. Then we go back to hate because there's an increased hatred among the leaders that's even more than it was in John 1145 through 57. So it is a hate, love, hate structure. So let's look at story number one. Story number one is a story about, about hatred. This is the village of Bethany, picture taken about, oh, 1897 or something thereabouts. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in this little village. And in Jesus' time, it was a village of about 200 people. The people were nestled together in these small homes on a hillside around what would have been a central square. And after Lazarus died, all sorts of people came to comfort the sisters, and Jesus went with them to Lazarus's tomb. And Lazarus's tomb would have looked about like this. It was a cave carved out of limestone with a wheel-shaped stone rolled over it to cover the, 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 the gaping hole. That stone is not totally covering it, but uh, you get the picture of what this would have looked like. When Jesus shouts, remove the stone, as I said last week, there was this terribly awkward sense of, Jesus, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. He's been dead four days. There's going to be a smell in the tomb. But Jesus says, no, remove the stone. They do. Lazarus, uh, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And there's a, a depiction of Lazarus waking out of the slumber of death about ready to get up. He hobbles out of the tomb, and now we have an empty tomb where Lazarus was and now is not. As you can imagine, the moment this happened, the rumor mill began to take place around Bethany. The rumor mill goes from Bethany to Jerusalem. Somebody finds out of the Temple Mount. The ruling council finds out, and now... Everybody knows that a major miracle has taken place. And I mean, you know, you know we, we think that we, had, we have the corner on the rumor mill because we have like FaceTime, uh, Facebook and we have Twitter and LinkedIn and all this stuff. We think we have 
the corner on the rumor mill. I, it, I, I will tell you that human beings are human beings. And nobody has the corner on the rumor mill. And the rumor mill in the, 18, in the, in the, you know, the ancient world was not texting things. It was people racing to the next village. Hey, did you hear about what happened? And then somebody racing to the next village. You can't believe what took place. The rumor mill was just as crazy in the ancient world as it is today. And everybody from the village of Bethany across the Kidron Valley to the city of Jerusalem knows that Jesus of Nazareth has just done an astonishing miracle. It's not the only time that Jesus has done this. He raised the widow's son in the village of Nain, but that was way up in the Jezreel Valley. He raised Jairus' daughter, but that was way up in Galilee. This is the first recorded incidence of Jesus raising somebody in Jerusalem. It was a massively big deal. Imagine Super Bowl 52. And we hear that the tailgaters have had a terrible tragedy. Somebody has died. And yet, this person is raised back up to life. Would that be a big deal? It would be a big deal. It'd be a big deal. It was a big deal. Big deal now, if that happened. Big deal back then. So the religious leaders uh, have got to convene a council. And they meet in the Antonio Fortress. There's a picture of it on the screens. And the chief priests and the scribes gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. Now, pause there for a second because what, what, the, what they're saying is we got a Passover coming up, guys. And Josephus tells us that on the Passover, there were a million people in Jerusalem. Now, we know that Josephus wildly exaggerated numbers. Um, must have been a pastor, right? Wildly exaggerating numbers. No, he would seriously exaggerate numbers, but even if his numbers are slightly off, we know from other sources that there could have been as many as half a million people coming into Jerusalem on Passover. And if Jesus pulls off another stunt in the middle of Passover, what they're saying is that everybody is going to flock from us over to him. And this is what they're worried about. The Romans will come and take away two things. They'll take away the nation, but what they're really worried about was they're going to take away our place. In other words, what they're concerned about is Jesus did a resurrection, and we're concerned about our power. That's politics for you. They were politicians long before they had any sort of religious passion. So Caiaphas stands up. Caiaphas says, and I appreciate the way you said this, Josh, uh, in your, uh, the, way you, the way you told the story, because, because he quieted everybody down with his, his just innate authority. He quite everybody down, and he said, you, he's, he's really being contemptuous. He said, you know nothing. You know nothing. And he is spitting contempt. Nor do you understand that it's better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Wow, what did he just say? What did he say? He said, guys, let me tell you something. We've got a decision to make. 
It's either Jesus dies or the nation dies. We got no other option. Jesus dies so that our nation can continue or Jesus continues and our nation is going to die. Now, that's an amazing statement because the statement he just made on a political level is going to be worked out on the spiritual level. Uh, because Caiaphas sensed that Jesus' death would be the substitute for their political survival, but God meant that Jesus would be the substitute for their spiritual salvation. What he said, the words he said, were true, but God would apply it in a radically different way. And it, it was not just going to die so that the nation Israel could be saved, but so the entire the entire world could be saved. So, so right there in the conference room at the Antonio Fortress, the ruling elite is unified. We have got to put Jesus to death now. And the reason was to preserve their precious power. That was, that was number one priority. And secondly, so that the nation as well could be preserved. So what does Jesus do? He knows they're after him. He knows it's not his time yet, so he and his disciples exit Jerusalem. They walk several miles to the great north-south highway, and they hike 20 miles north to the city of Ephraim. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the crowds are swelling. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are coming into Jerusalem. And guess what the topic of conversation is on everybody's tongue? Jesus. Jesus. Everybody is saying, hey, where is he? Is he here yet? Have you seen him? I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him either. Uh, man, when he comes, I want to talk to him. I want to talk to him. I heard he healed that guy's brother over there. I heard that he raised the guy from the dead. He is the topic of conversation uh, in everybody's mind, and yet, the ruling elite had put out an all-points bulletin on this guy and said, you know, um, if you find him, you let us know. we got to shut this guy down. So that's story number one. It is a story about hatred. And it's a story about hatred that is fueled by the lust for political pride and the lust for power. It's a hatred based upon a desire to remain in power. And I think we can learn a lot from, from this, this hatred. And the question is, will we allow Jesus to have his rightful place as Lord over our life? Or will we say, I am not going to have that guy ruling over me. I'm not going to have him tell me what to do with my body. I'm not going to have him tell me to do, what to do with my mind. I'm not going to have him tell me what to do with my money. That's the question. There's a lot of people who look at the claims that Jesus makes, his lordship claims, and they say, no way, no way. I'm not going to let him tell me what to do. That's story number one. Now we move to story number two. Story number one is a story about hate. Story number two is a story about, about love. It's a story about lavish love. So remember that the people um, are coming 
uh, for Passover. And you know how if you're going to Norman for an OU game, and let's say it's a championship game, you know how you're thinking, we'd better get there early. Because if we don't get there early, it's going to be bumper to bumper traffic, and it's going to be crazy. And we're not going to find a place to park. People did that for Passover. If you, if you got hundreds of thousands of people coming, people would get there early. And they would, they would stake out a place to stay. So um, the crowds are coming, and Jesus and his disciples are there early. And they got, they got plans for a party. And the party is for Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus rises from the dead. Everybody wants to see Lazarus and see how he's doing. Lazarus, how you feeling? Uh, and uh, it looks like you know he's lost about 20 years on his age. He looks like healthy and really active. And so there's a party for him. And the party is at a common uh, table, common room, banqueting room in the ancient world, where the tables were very low to the ground, and you actually laid on cushions to eat. We think this is kind of weird. I mean, we don't lay on cushions to eat. We sit at chairs, and we eat quick because we got stuff to do. Well, their whole, their whole enjoyment was to lay down and to relax and to enjoy a multi-hour meal with their friends. And so they would lay down on couches um, at a table that looks sort of like the thing that you see up on, up on the screens. And Jesus and his disciples make their way into that room, and Lazarus is already reclining at the table. And uh, they begin the meal. The prayer is prayed, the meal is served, the festivities begin. But Lazarus' sister Mary is strangely absent. Where's Mary? Like Mary is usually front and center. As soon as Jesus arrives at a place, Mary's there ready to listen to Jesus. Mary's gone. Where's Mary? Well, Mary apparently is uh, back in her room grabbing something off the shelf. And just as Jesus is about ready to dip his pita chip into the hummus and snag an olive, Mary comes in with a flask of very expensive ointment. Now, I'm, I'm showing these to you up on the screens. Here is an Egyptian alabaster flask on the right and a more traditional Middle Eastern alabaster flask on the left. What you don't see in the pictures is the wonderfully beautiful, translucent quality of those flasks. They are absolute works of art. The flask in itself is a work of art made out of translucent calcite. Uh, but in the flask was this very thick, viscous uh, ointment, so to speak, which was made of pure nard. In effect, what this was, well, it was a perfume concentrate. A perfume concentrate. Uh, came from India. So it was very expensive because the alabaster flask was expensive. The ointment on the inside was expensive. You could, you could make many, many bottles of perfume from what was inside that alabaster flask. Now, <clears throat> when, we, when we read this, we read it that it was uh, many thousands of dollars, a whole, whole year's wages. Let, let's say that it was $45,000. That's 
good amount of money in our day. That's a massive amount of money back in their day. And what she's doing is she's taking this alabaster flask and she is breaking the flask, letting the ointment flow out, and she's taking the ointment and she's anointing it all over the body of Jesus from his head to his feet. Now John only talks about about his feet, but the other Gospels talk about his entire entire body. What What would this be like? Imagine that you had Chateau Mouton Rothschild, 1945. Got a price tag of $114,604. That's an expensive bottle of wine. And imagine that you have a dinner party. You got 10 people at the dinner party, and you take out the bottle of wine. And instead of pouring it out at $10,000 a glass for your for your friends at the, at the wine, you break the bottle and the wine flows over the table and the aroma of the wine fills the dinner table. And you say to the, say, isn't that a wonderful smell? And what are the people who've been to your party thinking? What did you just do? You just ruined an example of one of the finest wines in existence. Chateau Rothschild, 1945. That is in essence what Mary did. She was using this as an occasion to express her love for Jesus. This perfume was undoubtedly the most expensive asset that she had. She most likely was saving it for her future wedding expenses. Maybe this was for her retirement, just in case she never married. It was her most valuable asset. And why, why did she expend this asset? Why? She expended it for love. She expended it for worship. She expended it because she wanted to love the one who had transformed her life. And what she does is amazing. I mean, she pours it out, she unbinds her hair, which in the ancient world, you just didn't do. Women pleated their hair, they kept her, their hair up in public. You would never let it down. That was a very warmly intimate thing to do. She unbraids her hair and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. The perfume is wafting through the room. It's lavish love. It's lavish, wasteful love in a sense it's lavishly humble she's at his feet wiping his feet it's lavishly symbolic and that's where we get to the essence of why she's doing this why would she do this why would she pour out this perfume onto jesus here's the reason why she's worshiping jesus for two reasons number one she's worshiping him in anticipation of his death what happened at every every person's death in the ancient world they would anoint the body with spices and with ointment, with perfume. She is worshiping Jesus in anticipation of his sacrifice on the cross for her sins. It is worship in advance of what Jesus is, is going to do. But it's more than that. It's also symbolic of the coming of the Holy Spirit that would happen not too many weeks later. 
But the Holy Spirit would be poured out, just like she poured out that perfume. The Holy Spirit would be poured out, not just upon her, but on all the disciples, upon everybody who comes to faith in Christ. It is a lavishly significant act of loving worship in anticipation of what Jesus is about to do. It is what I would call wasteful love. Now, I know some of you are kind of thinking, I can't, just can't reconcile the $114,000 bottle of wine and smashing that and letting the, the, the wine smell be the thing that excites people. It's not, how, it's not how you use wine. Well, that wasn't how you used an alabaster flask of perfume either. This is what we call lavish, wasteful love. Now, I want to ask you a question. Have you, ever, have you ever engaged in the discipline of wasteful love? I know you have. I know you have. Because what happens to you as a mother of young children? Does your child remember everything that you did, every loving event that you did for him or her? No, they don't. They don't, they don't remember that. You do. They don't remember that. Why do it then? Why say nice things to your child when they are 18 months old before bed? Why say nice things to your two-year-old or serve your two-year-old? Or I don't remember my mother's wonderful love to me when I was two years old at my birthday. I don't remember that. Did she waste that love on me? No. No. Because that love was an act for her of honoring me, whom she loved. Any love that you expend toward Jesus is not wasteful love. It is an act of loving, joyful honor to the one who has transformed your life. Not everybody's happy about this. As you know, Judas Iscariot, the guy who was about to betray him, is incensed, no pun intended. Uh, he, are you kidding me, he says? Are you, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. This could have been used to do all sorts of amazing things for the poor. What an idiot she is to do what she did. What an idiot. Judas did not care about the poor. He did not care about the poor. What Judas loved to do, he was, he was the treasurer. What he loved to do was, was take, take the cash box while nobody was looking, take some coins out of the cash box. And we use those coins to satiate whatever desire he had in the moment. He couldn't care less about the poor. He just wanted, he just wanted the money. So um, Ju Jesus confronts Judas and says, Judas, just leave her alone. Leave her alone. She, she has done this for the day of my burial. She's done this in anticipation. In anticipation of what's about ready to happen. So here's here's the story about, about love. When you genuinely love Jesus, you give him your total self, your total self, your body, your mind, your deed over your money and your possessions. You regard your family as his. You regard your career as his. And you give these things to him exuberantly and joyfully saying, Jesus, all I have is yours. You take it. You lead me as you, as you will. Now we go back to the next story, which is return to hate. 
and now we, we, we ramp up to much, much worse hatred. Uh, meanwhile, the word about Lazarus begins to spread, and the party in Bethany, I, suge- I suspect, was pretty loud. And the rumor mill gets going again, and somebody in Bethany tells somebody in Bethpage, and somebody in Bethpage tells somebody in Jerusalem, and somebody in Jerusalem tells somebody in the Temple Mount, somebody in the Temple Mount tells somebody in the Antonia Fortress. And pretty soon, there's an emergency meeting in the conference room of the Antonia Fortress. And uh, they are saying, guys, guys, we can't just get rid of Jesus. We also have to get rid of Lazarus. We've got to kill them both. We've got to kill them both. And we've got to do it soon because the Passover is coming up. And if anything happens on the Passover that makes people move over to Jesus, we've lost our power. The Romans are going to come down and they're going to destroy us. And if you could have been a bird on the wall in both places, or a bug on the wall, or whatever, however you use that little, that little saying, a bug on the wall, a bird, I don't know. <clears throat> um, you would have said, you know, in, in Bethany, I feel the love. In the Antonia Fortress, I feel the hate. In Bethany, the love of Mary is expressed tangibly. In the Antonia Fortress, the hatred felt like a dark swamp of black water, just a murky darkness. So we've gone to, from hate to love, now back to hate. So what's the significance of the story? This main, the main idea of the story in three parts really is designed to address the state of our heart. Remember the structure again. Hatred is followed by love, which is followed by hate. This is a classic sandwich structure in, um, in literature. And therefore, the focus is not on the two ends, but on the middle. The focus is on the middle. And the whole point of the story is that we would learn to love Jesus like Mary did and reject our potential for hatred. When I think about the sandwich structure, I think about this hamburger in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is called the Fleur Burger, which has the distinction of being the most expensive hamburger in the Guinness Book of World Records. How's that? The burger is made out of a special cut of Kobe beef and topped with a certain kind of foie gras with very, very rare and expensive ingredients. Look, when you, uh, by the way, I've, not, I've never had this hamburger, okay, in Las Vegas. I don't intend to have it. But you can go online and get a review of this hamburger. And this hamburger is reviewed like, like pe- people will say, I had the Fleur Burger and it was amazing. I had the Fleur Burger, it was not worth $5,000. <laughs> but the whole point is not, nobody comments on the bun, right? And, and the, they don't comment on the bun. They say, Guys, the bun is amazing. They comment on the thing in between, the amazing thing in between, right? So when you go back to this, this sandwich structure, the whole idea is the point is about love and confronting the, p- the possibility for hatred that we may have for the ones that we love. So the structure of the story invites us to ask the question, if I had been there, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to ask this question, if I had been there, would I have been, would I have been more like the Pharisees In other words, wanting to do away with Jesus' lordship. 
Or would I have been more like Judas, who kind of wants to follow Jesus, but do it for selfish reasons? Or would I be more like Mary? Who would I have been more like? Because the Pharisees and Judas are kind of in this little hatred category. Judas was like contemptuously hateful toward Mary. The Pharisees were obviously contemptuously hateful toward Jesus. So where am I? If I put myself in that story, am I, am I more like Judas? Am I more like the Pharisees? Or am I more like Mary? And here's the thing when it comes to love and hatred. We can't, we can't hold on to love of Jesus and love for what is not Jesus at the same time. Here's what Jesus said. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and material possessions. Now, don't get me wrong. You can own material possessions. You can use material possessions. You can steward material possessions, but you can't serve material possessions and serve God at the same time. You're going to have a love-hate relationship. You got you got to make the choice. Same thing we see in Luke 9:23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's this idea that sometimes we get into this love-hate relationship with Jesus. We say I I love you Jesus, I love you, but I don't like your lordship claims on my life. Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't like the fact that you allow this trial to come into my life. Lord Jesus, I, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't like these people that you brought into my life. Lord, I love you, but I'm kind of angry at you because I had my agenda, my agenda got seriously messed up by the circumstances, and you're sovereign over the circumstances, so I'm mad at you for messing up my life. It's a love-hate relationship with the living God, and it is super easy to, to, to get into that. So here's the key idea. To love Jesus is to love him with your whole body. Loving him for his past pouring out on the cross. Loving him for his present pouring out in the spirit. And confronting the potential for hatred when things don't go your way. So let me can close with some, some takeaways, some tangible ways that you can love Jesus. Takeaway number one is make worship a consistent part of who you are. In other words, you know, when it comes to worship, you, you can be very passive about it. You can say, okay, um, I'm going to come to worship and just passive, be passively sit. Or I'm going to engage in, in personal worship and I'm just going to passively wait for some magic to happen. And worship is not that. Worship is something you train for. You know, if you want to run a marathon, you train for it. If you, want to, if you want to play a Mozart sonata on the piano, you train for it. If you want to become an artist who can compete in artistic competitions, you train for it. Um, I can't run a marathon right now. I haven't trained for it. I cannot play Mozart's 23rd Piano Concerto. I haven't trained for it. Not that I could, right? Okay, I, I'm not that gifted musically. I love listening to it. But worship is one of those things that you train for. And I want you to th think back on Mary. Mary, we know, had trained for worship. In Luke, we see her 
sitting at the feet of Jesus, drinking in his every word. She was in practice. She had trained for worship. Everything she does in John chapter 12 indicates that this was something she had planned to do. She was in training for worship. When you are an effective worshiper, it's because you've trained for it. So what does this mean for you today? It means that um, you are committed to the discipline of corporate worship. Now look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying this as a pastor to say, show up and attend. I'm not saying that. It's really easy for pastors to kind of, guys, this is a good opportunity for me to say, regular attendance, really important at church. But what I am saying is that you look at your experience with corporate worship as a spiritual discipline that transforms your life as you come into corporate worship experiences intending to connect with God. It is, it's like eating well. It's like exercising. It's like doing habits that improve your life. Corporate worship is a discipline that transforms your life, transforms Mary's life. And so that's the first application. It's, this is something you train for, something you train for. It's not something you passively encounter. It's so easy to become a connoisseur of worship. Oh, it's, it's, it's not loud enough. It should be louder. No, it's too loud. It's too loud. Uh, it's not contemporary enough. No, it's too contemporary. It's, it's too country. No, no it's, it's, it's too rock. No, it's, it's too fill in the blank. And so you, you become a connoisseur, a passive connoisseur of corporate worship. And you're not, you're not in training. And if you want to have your life transformed, you view corporate worship as something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train for this, realizing that it has the potential to transform my life. Here's a second tangible thing we do. <clears throat> we work on our emotions in worship, and we allow those emotions of love to grow. Think again about Mary's worship. Um, Mary um, goes into her, I'm, I'm just envisioning like her bedroom, you know, her, her safe in her bedroom. She types in the numbers on her safe. I'm kidding about this, but she gets out her alabaster flask. And what is she thinking as she's walking to the banquet room? To the, she's, she's thinking about something. What is she thinking? What is she thinking? Emotions of love are welling up inside her. What is she thinking as she says, okay, here I go. Break the alabaster flask. She's thinking love. What is she thinking as the, as the perfume pours out? She's gathering it and she's putting it on the body of Jesus. These are emotions that are welling up. And part of what happens in, in, in love is you allow emotions to well up. There's negative emotions in this passage as well, like Judas, like, doggone it! Look what she did! Wasting that, wasting that perfume. There's negative emotions. There's emotions very obvious in this, in this passage. I know people have different personalities and different abilities to connect with emotions, but part of what we do as loving followers of Jesus is we nurture positive emotions. Look what Paul says. Philippians uh, 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. That is a command. All right, well, that means I need to learn how to ramp up 
feelings of joy. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 8, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Well, wait a second. If I'm sad, I'm going to be in my sadness. And Paul says, no, we, we, don't, we don't do that. No, we, when, we're, when we're sorrowful, what we do is we, is we, we ramp up an emotion of joy which says, even though I'm sorrowful, I rejoice in God's presence and in his power in my life. So if you want to love Jesus well, you work on your emotions as you connect with him in worship. Here's the third application. To love God, keep your receptors up for love. Keep up your receptors. You know, here's the deal. When you worship, God will sometimes give you the feeling that you are accepted in him. Now, if you've encountered that, you know what that's like. You're, you are involved in a worship setting, a corporate worship experience, a small group experience, and that experience, you sense the God of the universe loves me. He accepts me. He unconditionally regards me. He is for me. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm his child. God, God loves. He loves to do this. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Um, when I was growing up, my mom made this incredible bread. In the wintertime, the bread is called Sally Lunn bread. Sally Lunn bread is, um, is a traditional English bread. Lots of yeast, lots of sugar and butter and all things that make things taste good. And so in the wintertime, my mom would make the Sally Lunn bread. And I can remember coming into our house in Chicago on a snowy day, and I would smell, ah, oh, my mom's made bread. And what I wanted was to say to my mom, uh, can I have some with butter and honey on it? And my mom a few times had to say, this is for the party, so no. But my mom was pretty good about, about giving me what I wanted when it came to you know, that, that kind of food stuff. And so, um, so I would have this, this bread, but it was, it was the smell of the bread that evoked the emotion. Well, God regards your worship that way. When, when you worship God, it is like a fragrant aroma to him. He loves it. He loves it. And so many times what God will do is he will provide an affirmation in the midst of that. And I would say, keep those love receptors up. Because when God does that in the midst of a worship setting, that is, that's life-changing. That's what, great when that, when that happens. And a final application is this. Get ready for pushback and persecution. Mary lavishly loves Jesus, but guess what? She gets pushback from Judas. Lazarus loves Jesus. Jesus brought him back to life. But guess what? Lazarus is the object of the Pharisees' hatred because he was the recipient of a miracle. They want to kill him. So look, when you love Jesus well, you got to be willing to be to receive mild pushback, major pushback, because it'll happen. To love Jesus is to invite opposition. So I, I go back to, to the structure. You got to hate, love, hate. 
story structure. Hatred of the Pharisees, the love of Mary, the increased hatred of the Pharisees. And the whole point is, how's your love for Jesus going? And, and, do you sometimes have a love-hate relationship with him because you don't want to submit to his lordship? If that's you this morning, I would just, I would invite you, I invite you to do some business with him. And just to, just to tell him, Lord Jesus, I, I am going to submit to your lordship. I am going to submit to your leadership over my life. Let's stand for a closing prayer. We've got an elder who's going to come and pray for us. like to remind you that if you need personal prayer for any situation, we have members of the prayer team that will be up front after the service. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world to uh, take it back, to take back authority from the enemy, to show us your love, your grace, uh, your lavish love for us, and that he would die. That, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us and sacrificing and dying that we might be forgiven for our sins, past, present, and future, that we might be able to be healed by you, delivered from habitual sins by you, uh, to give us a ministry of reconciliation with all the things in our life and our Father above, to bring peace to us. Lord, we give it to you. Let us give us your, our, our best to you, as Mary did, in every area of our lives today and in the days to come. Thank you for your lavish love on us, on our families, and on those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.